Welcome to Rhetoric O Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our first season of Rhetoric O Rama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. In this episode, we conclude our three part series on the Holy Trinity of Aristotelian appeals. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of ethos. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Dia men un tu ethos, hotan huto lexe ha logos hosta axi apiston poiese ton leganta. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's from uh, Aristotle's rhetoric. Book one, chapter two, hmm? line four or five? Four, oh, exactly. Cl- okay, You're so fantastic, close, so close. Dave. Tim, what is ethos? Um, what is ethos? It's uh, what my uh, what I tell my kids to do with their vegetables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People don't just judge the argument presented by the rhetor. They also judge the rhetor. So it's important for the rhetor to construct themselves as a certain kind of person that the judge's audience will feel favorably toward. And so when there's, when there's, when there's doubt in your argument, mm-hmm. who the speaker is or who the rhetor is can sway that. Indeed. And I would say, actually, this is one of the, this, if you were to ask me what's the most important lesson of anybody who studies communication is the source of the message is more important than the message itself. Consider the source. All right. So, uh, ethos consider, uh, uh, as you suggested, ethos is only in play when the speaker is actually speaking. Mm -hmm. That might cause some issue later, Ah. but that's what he says. But now, I've got a little quibble with that Uh in that I think even before the speaker opens his or her mouth, you get to see the speaker. And so, modern understanding of ethos is influenced unduly, I think, by Victorian-era translations of ethos as equivalent to character. There's a dem- another dimension of ethos coming from the root word ethe, meaning custom, habit, practice, which broadens the notion of ethos to include tribal membership. So when a rhetor addresses an audience, we don't simply judge whether or not she is a person of good character, but also whether or not she is a member of our tribe. Try to find a political candidate campaigning in New Hampshire who is not wearing a red and black plaid shirt. Is that the, uh, the ethos jacket? That's the official costume of New Hampshireites. Oh, I didn't so know that. So somebody's coming up from Virginia. He's not going to dress as a Virginian. He's going to put on a red and black plaid shirt before what he is or the, she dresses. Uh, what is the uh, the state costume of New Jersey? Um, I think it's it's one of those sleeveless t-shirts. Uh, one of those yeah, one of those sleeveless uh, with that with a gold chain. Yeah. and a middle finger. Got to have a gold chain. Oh, that's stereotype. That's stereotype. All right, so. Some details about what uh, Aristotle talks about in terms of ethos, and no shocker, no surprise here, he talks about three mm-hmm. characteristics. Yep. The first one being uh, phronesis. Yeah, that's sort of the wisdom or intellectual aspect of it. Somebody uses common sense. Yeah, that's certainly a sign of being wise. Acts with taste, moderation. Yeah, basically, you know, uh, moderation in all things was one of the things Aristotle was famous for saying. I yeah. myself believe moderation in all things, including moderation. Uh-huh. You That's gotta, true, right? Yeah, you got you to be a moderate at times. you got to cross the line to know where the line is. Absolutely. As a good drinking buddy yeah. of mine used to say. Um, and also how well you handle yourself while speaking, mm-hmm. right? The actual uh, uh, handling of the material, of mm-hmm. the information, how yep. you present yourself. Yep. That's wisdom of speaking. Yeah, and you don't want to kind of go off half-cocked. You don't want to seem like a lunatic because then what you have is lost some credibility with your audience. Yeah. Right? You want to do that before you start speaking, because that doesn't matter, apparently. 
another detail that revolves around ethos is the uh, high character. Yeah, this uh, they've got this concept arete, and the speaker associates himself or herself or his message, which that which is virtuous and elevated. Can you give me an example of something uh, a topic that is either high character or low character? Well, certainly justice is one of those high character oh, yes. things, and um, you know. Personal hygiene. Talking about personal hygiene in the middle of your speech might be considered, you know, that's that's a little low. Low, low, low taste, right? Yeah. Uh, how to decorate your trailer, mm-hmm. right, or something like that. Um, you can link to your opponent or your opponent's message, which is a victor- uh, which is of high character or virtuous, mm-hmm. right? or to what is not high character or virtuous. True. Uh, you can minimize. A speaker can do this by minimizing unfavorable impressions of them. Okay. themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So say a political candidate in New Hampshire might have done some bad things. Mm-hmm. Maybe he or she did the horrible thing of ordering a hot dog with spicy mustard. Uh-huh. Oh, that's not virtuous. Not knowing that what you do is you, supposed to you're supposed to put maple syrup on the hot dog. <laughs> the maple syrup hot dog. Um you can rely on your authority that's derived from your own personal experience mm-hmm. or create the impression of being sincere. Yeah. Which seems not very credible if you're creating the impression that you're sincere. Yeah, so that whole, cre- you know, impression of, so it's, it's there's this uh, adage, uh, what is it, uh, essay uh, quam vidare, be uh-huh. rather than seem. Mm. But in things rhetorical, often seeming is Isn't very damn important. It's the only thing. Yeah. Uh, so we got wisdom, we got high character, mm-hmm. we have goodwill. Yeah. That the Greek word for that is eunoia. So unlike paranoia, eunoia is uh-huh. is goodwill. And you're going to capture the proper balance between too much and too little praise of his audience. Yeah, you want to be nice to your audience, yeah. but you don't want to be a sycophant. Exactly. If they think you're a fig shaker, they're going to be tossing figs at you. Uh, you want to identify yourself properly with the hearers and their problems, right? You want to mm-hmm. say, hey, I understand that. I, I feel your pain. I feel your pain, yeah. And so that gets back to that tribal membership, you know. So the, the people here, these uh, coal miners, they're all suffering from black lung. Uh-huh. And so, like, you know, you don't have black lung because you never spend any time in the in the uh, coal mine. But, you know, if you knew what the symptoms were and could talk about what a drag it is to be, you know, coughing up black lungers on yeah. a regular basis. Yeah, so if somebody's talking about how we need to rewrite the tax code so they can afford their 37-room yacht. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not really connecting with the audience. And not unless you're just, everybody there has 37 or more rooms on yeah. their yacht. I think the max is 34. I read that somewhere. Um, I also have here, uh, you can proceed with candor and straightforwardness, mm-hmm. right? That's another way of showing goodwill. I'm going to say, hey, this is important. Let's get right to it. Let's yep. not beat around the bush. Yep. And again, appearing candid is a great thing. So, you know, if you're really... Think about it. You might have to really practice being candid or appearing candid. Yeah, you have to really try to be inauthentic. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry, authentic. There right? you go. All right. So now, Tim, here's where things get a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Now, George Kennedy. Back to George. We love George. George is a good guy. Uh, he writes in chapters 2.112 through 17, like chapters 2 uh, and uh, or book 2, chapters 2 through 11, seem to have been inserted in the rhetoric without any revision to integrate them within the book, right? Kind of like what we've talked about in pathos mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So these can cha- uh, some of these chapters contain no mention of mm-hmm. anything related to oratory. Mm-hmm. So in the last episode, I asked you, pathos just seemed to be plopped in there. Yeah. And it seems to be ethos is also kind of plopped in there. And the talk about what is 
uh, ethical is also talked about in terms of judicial and forensic and all those other mm-hmm. kinds of things. It's just kind of sprinkled throughout like paprika on so many deviled eggs. There you go. And it's hard to understand how he puts this next section that we'll talk about into ethos, right? Because he talks about the types of audiences a person can speak to yes. and how to adapt one's ethos to that. Right. Is that ethos per se? Well, again, it comes back to that notion of tribal membership. Mm-hmm. So if ethos is understood simply as the good character of the speaker, and now that speaker is speaking maybe to a group of people who have bad character, uh-huh. it's like, well, that's not going to work. So basically, if you are speaking to a group of crooks who are regularly embezzling, you might want to mention, you know, that you engage in daily, you know, practice of, of sort of Crookery. Larceny, right? Yeah. Bits of larceny. Who hasn't so, engaged in that from time to time? So the notion of the ways that you can uh, connect to uh-huh. your audience as somehow binding you to them as a member of their tribe, mm-hmm. that is then getting back to the larger version of ethos as mm-hmm. tribal membership rather than the narrower version just as good character. Hmm. That makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So that's how it fits in. Uh, and he talks about a number of types of audiences. Uh, the first one he talks about are young people. Oh, they're the just youths. hedonistic and pleasure-loving. Yeah. Uh, yeah he, uh, Aristotle says young people are uh, uh, impulsive, bold, they're optimistic, they're forward-looking, they're driven by sex that, again. I, from personal experience, I can say that one is true. That is true. <laughs> I've seen the uh, – well, I'm not going to go down that and when you appeal to these, you want to appeal to those uh, speaking to that yeah. group. You kind of want to do, yeah. and so you can see various rhetors talking to groups of young people mm-hmm. about how optimistic and great the world can be, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Aristotle mentions that one of the drawbacks of young people is they don't know how difficult the world can be yet. It, they, they they've got some experience, and they don't know how well it is. They don't know how difficult it can be, and if you are going to tell them how difficult it's going to be. Not going to go well. That's going to be a downer. Yeah. And basically they're going to say, uh, you know, okay, boomer. You yeah. Know, they're going to they're going to shut you down. Yeah. Um, anything else on that? No. I think, you know, so uh, it is often the case with educators that a, a educator of some age uh-huh. is communicating to a younger audience. Most of the and time. And so... Uh, that that can be challenging. Some people maybe are better at it than others. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you understand that your audience is, you know, just thinking about sex, yeah. you can possibly make your lesson more interesting. So when I'm teaching about various subjects, mm-hmm. I work in sex as much as frequently as possible. Absolutely. And playing Space Invaders because <laughs> I think the young people like playing the video games. Yeah. And things like Does that. Does Space Invaders still exist as a video game? I think it's actually a real world problem that we're going to have to contend <laughs> with. But young people, according to Aerosol, don't seem to be interested in that. Yeah. Uh, because that's not pleasurable. Yeah. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum are old people. And once again, he's doing his opposites. He starts with the old people, young people, and goes to the old people. And the old people, instead of always looking forward, they're always looking backward. Now, I think it's funny that Aristotle mentions the reason why people are always old people are looking backwards is because they don't have much to look forward to. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Aristotle. Yeah. Wow. Um, Aristotle tells us that old people, their honor and opinions aren't very important. What they really care about is what is useful and necessary. Yeah. And having talked to my grandfather, that is true. He doesn't care about anything other than the things he needs. Exactly. Um, And he says, while young people don't know how difficult life can be, old people know this very well. Mm -hmm. Right? They know it very well. And almost to the extent they expect the worst. Yeah. Right? We get pessimistic with age. 
Uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, you come to embody that. And in between the young and the old are the in-betweeners. Yeah, the kind of lukewarm water in there. The luke- yeah, if young people were fire and old people were water, yeah. lukewarm water in the there middle. There you go. So uh, in between those, those are the people in their prime, the translations tell us, uh, people between the old and the young. They are confident, but not too confident. Not too confident because they have some experience with hard knocks. Uh-huh. They've got knocked around a bit. Right now, they're feeling pretty good because mm-hmm. they're comfortable, but they remember being knocked down, and they know that knockdowns can happen in the future. Mm-hmm. But they still have some more knockdowns coming, right, mm-hmm. which could be pretty severe. Yeah. Uh, I think it's funny, uh, Aristotle mentions that the body is in its prime between the ages of 30 and 35. Mm-hmm. And he was probably about 30 or 35 when he wrote that. I, well, actually, he, for, he was 49 okay. when he wrote that. I, I did some re- uh, secondary sources. Uh, he said, while the body is, is sharp at 30 and 35, the mind is at its sharpest at 49. And George Kennedy notes in a footnote, he was 49 years old right when he said that. Uh, George, he is such a scholar. He is like him and Aristotle, BFFs. Yeah. Did the kids still say that? They do. I don't know. I'm not a young person. I think I'm an in-betweener. Mm-hmm. I think I'm an in-betweener. Um, and so to appeal to those people, you kind of just ride the Aristotelian mean. Mm-hmm. Can I say that? Yeah. Just Moderation don't. in all things. That's true. Uh, another group of people uh, are those who are well-born. Oh, yeah, the silver spoon. Right. They've won the lottery of birth, some okay. philosopher said. Didn't some philosopher say that? He did. He did. Uh, I won the hair lottery in my family. Oh, yeah? I have two older brothers uh, and a father, all of whom had less hair at 50 than I have while I'm pushing 70. So, you know, you know see, that's the, I would say they've won the ability to run much faster. Because <laughs> the drag yeah. when you're, is just, yeah. you know, people don't wear baggy clothes toward right. in the Olympics, right? you gotta, you got to have that stuff gone. So people who were born to a rich, supportive environment and mm-hmm. an excellent family. They got it made. Right? They got it made. And how do you appeal to these people in a speech? Um, you know, Aristotle doesn't tell us. No, but one of the things is you don't want to tell them that they don't deserve what they got because yeah. they're going to become indignant if you tell they're them. They're going to become no, indignant. When, when, in fact, they don't deserve what they got, but just don't mention that. Yeah, they just got it. Yeah. Uh, so there's the well-born. There's also wealthy people. Oh, yeah. Right? Which could be different than the well-born. Indeed. Right? And so some people were just born regular, but they became wealthy, sometimes by you know unscrupulous behavior, uh, arrogance. They can. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get wealthy without being a nice guy. My understanding is you can get rich by pulling up your boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, I've heard that. There one. are these straps. Yeah. you got to grab the straps and pull yourself up by them. I've yanked on my bootstraps many a times. Uh-huh. It has not changed my yeah. bank account. I'm not I think... Sure. Actually, one of the things Aristotle was not great with was physics. Uh-huh. And I think the notion, physics says pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps yeah. is physically impossible. It's like the Mitch Hedberg joke about belt, uh, your belt and belts uh, loops on your pants. Mm-hmm. Well, if the belt holds your pants up and the loops hold your belt up, really what's, what's going on here? <laughs> Aristotle doesn't seem to like wealthy people. No, he, he's, uh, he himself was he's not anti, terribly... He's anti-material wealth. Yeah, he was not terribly wealthy, and so he probably has a little bit of resentment towards these people. Yeah, he but, even called him arrogant. Arrogant. But for some reason, that did not interfere with his ability to become tutor to Alexander the Great. Uh. So we might have a little bit of you know, hypocrisy in Aristotle here. Hard to believe. It is. That's sarcasm, by the way. Because he was smart. that didn't communicate well. Uh, 
So the reason why Aristotle doesn't seem to like wealthy people is because they see everything as purchasable, mm -hmm. right? They, yep. So if you have resources, you can gain something or you can buy it. And so they feel like they're always in control. Everything is for sale. And right. he would probably say things like, justice is not for sale. Yes. And but although it at, probably is. <laughs> well, yeah. innocent until poor, proven broke. Yeah. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Did you write that? I did. Oh, nice. Um, he says they're ostentatious, they're pretentious, they're showy, they're elitist. Yeah. Right? Like to show off their wealth, their resources, and things like Those that. Those 37 rooms on their yachts. you got to have 37. I don't know how you can show your face in public with, with the, 36 rooms or absolutely. less. Absolutely. Uh, people who are another type of audience he mentions are those who are powerful, mm. those who uh, have uh, ambitious and mainly more so than the rich people, right? They're, They're more artists, manly. Right? They're hardworking, mm -hmm. endeavor, uh, just always on the ball. And they're very focused. And one of the reasons they're focused is because if they have power or wealth, you know, somebody could be after that stuff. And they want to so keep it, right? You need a hawk eye. That's true. Uh, and he says they're uh, uh, a little more dignified because of that, right? Mm -hmm. A little more, uh, not so much showy because they don't want people after their power. Mm -hmm. So they kind of exercise that power not as uh, ostentatiously yeah, so as got, the rich. They're back to that decorum, you know? And Aristotle yeah. also says if they commit a wrong, they usually do a big wrong. That really right? big wrong. I'm thinking of uh, Elon Musk, basically. Oh, yeah. He's made some mistakes recently, and they're like, on a very grand scale. Yeah? Yeah. Like? Like... Uh, you know, he was... Uh, War crimes? No, more like uh, he was going to take uh, Tesla private, and he uh -huh. set the stock price at 420 uh -huh. and people thought that was a, a marijuana reference. Stock got too high? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so one thing Aristotle talks about in all these kind of types of audiences is uh, a lot like our criti my criticism of his pathos. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about these types of people, but not really how to specifically address to them. You, it, the, the, the reader of the rhetoric has to kind of figure out the strategies and the techniques to do that. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I'm going to keep harping on this is basically uh, you want them to think that you're like them. Mm -hmm. So you figure out, you know, who the audience is, what are their traits, what is their thinking pattern, and you sort of display those same thoughts and thinking patterns yourself, mm -hmm. and that's how you will appeal to them. So say, he's one of us. Using the exact opposite of his three types of credibility yeah. appear inauthentic yeah. fake to try to win over support from other people. Yeah. Well, how about that? All right, Tim, let's wrap up. Uh, the speakers, so Aristotle tells us that the speaker's identity and reputation while speaking is a critical aspect of rhetoric. And since it's the identity uh, while speaking, ethos is about the relationship with the audience. And I think that's how that second section fits in. I think you're right. And I'm just going to repeat what I said earlier today. And if I recall correctly, may have mentioned in an earlier episode that a proper understanding of ethos included not simply the character of the speaker, but her tribal membership. Is she a member in good standing of our tribe? If so, we listen. If not, we ignore, we boo, or we throw produce. You ready for your challenges? I am ready for my challenges. All right. I got two for you. Mm -hmm. One. If you could create a new type of audience, mm -hmm. right? Aristotle seems very limited in the types of audiences he's identified. Yeah. There seems to be a lot more now. Okay. What kind of audience do you think he has missed the most, either from that time period or now? Okay. An audience that he has missed would be someone 
who is so wrapped up in their technology that mm -hmm. they really do not receive input from uh, carbon-based organisms like people. Mm -hmm. Everything they get comes through a screen or through electronic amplification. So oh, how do you reach those people? Yeah, uh, I just saw this uh, earlier today, that 80% of people who watch TV are also watching another screen at the same time. Wow. Right, so now so it's, what that's percent? the old-fashioned TV is now. Yeah. What percent of that 80% of their people's attention is dedicated to screen two? I want to say 24.3. I think you're probably correct in that. I don't know. I just made that up. Okay, Dave, I've got a challenge for you. Sure. Okay. So you're about to give a talk at a conference you've mm -hmm. been invited to. You're actually sort of the guest speaker. And then this high-ranking person in your tribe is basically going to introduce you to this rather large audience. And so what they do is they do like a really nice glowing account of you and your accomplishments, mm -hmm. but basically they're reading somebody else's bio. None uh -huh. of the facts are correct and they don't even get your name right. Uh -huh. How do you respond? I would stand up and I would give my speech, I would give my talk, and at the very end I would say, thank you for having me, this has been an honor for me, and I would say, that whoever they introduced me as, and I would say that person's name, I'm out of here. <laughs> because it doesn't matter, does it? Under Aristotle, just your credibility while you're speaking. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, that's good, I like it. Right? Uh, Thinking on the fly. And I guess I could if I really wanted to be angry about it. Uh, I mean, not angry at the person who, who misidentified me, but at the person who I was identified as <laughs> is I could give a really horrible talk. And so when they say, oh, Tim McGee was here. Yeah. And I was like, he said all sorts of stupid yeah. stuff. I guess I could do that too. Yeah. And that would probably relate back to one of our things like spite or envy or indignation. That's true. All right, Tim, I got one more challenge for you. I'm ready. Let's say that you were about to give a speech mm -hmm. and you had you were a little nervous. Mm -hmm. And right as you walked up to the lectern or podium, as okay. the case may be, you said, right on stage, right in front of everybody, but you haven't got there to your notes, yeah. you pulled out your bong and took a massive <laughs> hit. Okay. And you go like, wow. <laughs> and then you walked up and gave your speech. Okay. According to Aristotle, does that negatively affect your credibility? It, it depends entirely upon my audience. If my audience is high, they're going to say, like, he's one true. of us. That's your tribe talk. Yeah. And if basically these are people who you know work for uh, you know the drug enforcement agency, they might uh, uh, doubt my credibility, or they might actually have some handcuffs on themselves and, and try to incarcerate me. Well, that's true, but I think Aristotle would say it just matters what you did during your actual speech. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't part of your speech, yeah, I think that's a limit. Yeah, right. There's a little more to it then. All right, Tim, we good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. I'm having a flashback. Looks like it's time for another historical tidbit. Okay, I've got two examples of what I think are really outstanding ethos moves. Sometime around 2002, I heard Father George Coyne, who was the papal astronomer at the time, give a talk about astronomy and faith. And shortly after he began, he prefaced a sentence by saying, last week when I was having coffee with the Pope and he just kept rolling. The other best ethos move occurs in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. 
when he writes, if I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day. It's that S that makes secretary plural as he writes to eight Alabama clergymen, none of whom is likely to have more than one secretary. That is an ethos move par excellence. I like the idea of, you know, if I had met the Pope or anybody worked with the Pope, I would let that just hang for at least 30 seconds mm-hmm. so people could realize they're dealing with, you know, somebody who's, you know, been there been to the there. mountaintop. Yeah. Right? I'd even do that if I met Hulk Hogan. <laughs> All right. Okay, Tim, uh, before we go get some cheeseburgers, uh, let's take care of some business. Who is sponsoring today's episode? You're going to like this one, Dave. Undoubtedly, you've noticed the TV ads asking if you worked with asbestos and suffered this type of cancer, or if you used talcum powder and contracted that kind of cancer, or used a certain weed killer and got a different kind of cancer, directing you to contact the law offices that specialize in those particular carcinogens. But what if your cancer doesn't match the carcinogen you're exposed to? That's where we come in, matchmycarcinogen.com. We have a comprehensive list of known carcinogens that are keyed to an extensive collection of related cancers, and we use the computing power of our massive database to match your cancer to some workplace, environment, or lifestyle choice carcinogen. And if we can't produce a one-to-one correlation between your cancer and a known carcinogen, then you might take advantage of our new bundling strategy based on the highly successful tranche approach to subprime mortgages. We simply bundle your cancer in with a large pool of other clients' cancers and attribute the entire pool to a catch-all collection of carcinogens, ranging from a relative who once lived in Love Canal to a highway patrol officer who kept his radar gun in his lap between implementations. So just because you didn't get the right cancer associated with talcum powder doesn't mean we can't get you some for your pain and suffering. So don't delay. Get in touch now at matchmycarcinogen.com, an equal opportunity exploiter. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric rama a podcast about all things rhetoric. We'd like to thank our British voiceover artist, and we'd like to thank our musical director, Tom Santiago. rhetoric rama is recorded at Casto di Pado Studios. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun or consult your local library. That's the end of Season 1 of Rhetoric-O-Rama. Season 2 will be coming shortly. Now let's get some cheeseburgers. I love it. And I'd like to take a minute, Tim, to thank all the people that have met us on the streets after hearing our wonderful voice. I mean, it was only one, and it was your (laughs) wife, but I mean, I can't be more appreciative. That must have been pretty exciting. It was. I still tell everybody about it. That's my number one ethos statement. (laughs)